Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 2009 marks the 200th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln spoke of a time uh, that, that would be remembered in history, in his era. We reach a similar time in our era. Today we'll talk about parallels between Lincoln's period and our own with our guest, Professor Edna Green Medford of Howard University. Join us for a conversation with Dr. Medford on Civil War Talk Radio. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. To open the show today, I gave perhaps the worst introduction in the history of Civil War talk radio, not having the Lincoln quote at hand I meant to use and other things because I've just run up three flights of stairs uh, to get to my office, coming back from a uh, overnight retreat for department chairs here at East Carolina uh, where we talked about impending budget cuts and other things. So it's been one of those weeks of literally dashing about second to second uh, trying to get everything done in the nick of time. Uh, one of those things I like to do at the beginning of the show, well, first always, is remind listeners uh, that uh, though I'm here at ECU, uh, home of the Pirates, I'm not speaking on behalf of the university, nor does the university speak for me. It's uh, uh, no, no shared liability for opinions expressed on the show, and I'm sure the same is true of our guest who will be representing her own views and not those of any institutions. Uh, normally, I would then launch into a description of uh, the Did Lincoln Own Slaves World Tour, uh, Part 2, the Bicentennial Tour, uh, let you know where I'll be over the next few months talking about uh, the recent book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves, and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but because I've just dashed into the office, fired up the computer, I'm now staring at the uh, the blue screen of death that comes up every time I turn on the computer telling me I need to check the disks, which takes about uh, two minutes or more. Uh, the technical people here at ECU tell me, oh, yes, your computer's dying. You should back everything up uh, frequently. Uh, can it be fixed? No, not really. Um, can I get a new one? Well, normally every three years, yes, but with the budget, maybe every four years. Now it's every five years. Can I get a new one now since this one's dying? Well, that's not their business. They don't know. Um, so 
uh, I sit here staring at a blue screen, unable to tell you exactly where I'll be, with one exception uh, that I recall very clearly, which is April uh, 24th, 25th, the last weekend in April, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, for a symposium on Abraham Lincoln. And I remember that one in particular because our guest today will be there as well. And uh, there will be many people uh, in the Lincoln world. Uh, if you're anywhere in the northeast part of the country, you will be well served to come and hear uh, the speakers, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, Drew Faust, James McPherson, David Herbert Donald, uh, many, many people, Harold Holzer, Frank Williams, Mike Vorenberg. Uh, uh, I'm sure, I'm, I know I'm forgetting many others, but it will be a, a, a marvelous conference, and uh, if you can come and hear that, I think it will be a good way to uh, think significantly about the Lincoln Bicentennial, uh, not just the hoopla, but some some serious uh, content to go there as well. Well, when the uh, computer fires up in the second session, I'll, I'll see if I can run down that list of places I'll be for those who might be curious and haven't heard it. In the meantime, uh, let's get down to business. Our guest today uh, as said in the, the hasty introduction, uh, Professor Edna Green Medford of Howard University. Uh, Edna, are you there? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Thanks for being with me. And on short notice, I know we changed schedules to get you in here today, so I really appreciate you doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, you and I have uh, crossed paths uh, numerous times on the Lincoln Circuit uh, at one conference or another, but usually uh, uh, in between doing other things. We don't always get a chance to sit and talk. Uh, one of the questions I often ask the guest is, is about uh, his or her background. And it occurs to me, uh, uh, while I, I know your work and we've talked many times, uh, uh, I don't really know how you got started in, in history. What? Uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Okay, well, I'm uh, a native Virginian. I was born in Charles City County, Virginia, a little little county um, on the James River between Richmond and Williamsburg, uh, a place where um, it was one of the oldest shires of Virginia, uh, established in 1634. And um, as I was growing up, I was always surrounded by old plantations, and I always wondered where I fit into all of that. So my interest in history was the result of where I lived, I think, more than anything else. And so I don't think I could have been anything but a historian because I was always curious uh, about, and I always wanted to answer that question about how I fit into all of that. But, you know, I think it's true of so many of us in the field that we couldn't have done anything else because if we could have, we'd be making more money. And doing <laughs> Absolutely. It. Uh, did, did you find out where you fit in? Well, no, uh, because I, I certainly realized early on that plantations were um, run by, well, they, they existed because enslaved people were there to work them. I have never been able to trace back to my enslaved ancestors. And I can go back to 1879, I mean, excuse me, 1789, excuse me, mm. and I have not been able to find them. So the family was free on both sides, both my mother's family and my father's family. They were both free as early as the, the 1770s. And the, it's very difficult to trace back beyond that. I would think it would be. Uh, I mean, Virginia and Maryland had substantial free black populations Absolutely. at that time. So 
and that's not a part of the story as commonly told, certainly as mm-hmm. as, as that of slavery. But uh, uh, interesting. I, a lot of people are interested in genealogy, uh, and yet they don't often cross paths with history. Uh, I mean, gene- you, you go to the National Archives, you see genealogists at work, right. and they're doing their own thing. Uh, but in your case, it led to a broader interest. Yes, it, it did. I Once I started, actually, I didn't even really start researching my family history. I was interested in the county as a whole, uh, especially the, the slavery and Civil War era. And my, my relatives are really upset with me because I haven't taken the time to really trace the family back any further than 1779. Uh, it's, I just have a much broader interest in that. I would love to know more about my family, but I have been so busy just looking at that transition from slavery to freedom that I've just never had enough time to spend on my own family. But I am doing a study um, that includes the family. It's the part of the family that went to Canada in 1856, and these were free black people, not runaway slaves, who went to uh, southern Ontario in 1856. So you just chose to, to emigrate? From... Yes, and I still can't figure out why. Uh, you know, everyone says it's got to be because of the fugitive slave law that was passed in 1850, and it wasn't just enslaved people who were very concerned about that law. It was about free blacks as well. Free blacks became very uncomfortable living in the South after that law was passed. It may be that my relatives went to Canada as a consequence of that, but everything I've read about the county suggested that race relations were rather tame, you know, by comparison to other areas. And my family specifically had some standing in their community. They had property. and But still you had 29 members of that family, the family and extended family members going to Canada. But there were many more who stayed behind. So I'm trying to use my family as a bridge between the community that they helped to develop in Canada and the community they left behind in Virginia. And are you working on this for publication? Yes, I am. And uh, the book should be finished uh, within the coming year. Ah, well, that will be something we'll definitely definitely look forward to. That sounds like a very interesting story. As a rule on Civil War talk radio, we've limited uh, uh, the story to the war itself, but uh, with some exceptions... Uh, uh, we talked with the author of uh, Bound for Canaan, for example, mm-hmm. uh, a year or so ago, dealing with the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. And he certainly pointed out the difficulty of sources, uh, uh, the Underground Railroad specifically, where the activity is illegal. People don't keep detailed records for the authorities to find. Uh, but even with, with uh, free people, uh, I imagine pursuing the sources would be a challenge. Yes, because for the most part, they were illiterate, and they were not leaving records. Uh, the, the Virginia side has been difficult, except for notarial sources. You know, I can go to tax records. I can go to land records. Uh, I can look at the census. But I, I don't find diaries and letters and those kinds of things. They just don't exist for this particular family. And unfortunately, they don't exist for a lot of free black families, because in many of these areas free black families weren't, weren't even given the opportunity to educate their children. It was illegal in some areas to, to even have free blacks educated, of course. Now, you, so you got started in, in history generally from, from this personal interest, broadened then to, to look at your community. 
Um, did did you study history as an undergraduate? Yes, I did. But but it was um, a minor field. My uh, my undergraduate major was teacher education with history as a minor. But then did you expect to teach, or, or what was your career path at that point? I had expected to teach, and uh, I did my student teaching uh, my senior year and absolutely hated it and promised myself <laughs> that I would never enter the classroom again as long as I lived. But I decided to go on to graduate school and uh, did teach uh, as um, a teaching assistant in graduate school and fell in love with teaching. I, re- I realized it was very different from teaching uh, at, at the secondary ed level. And so now I don't know what I would do if I couldn't teach. Uh, so, and did you g- move straight from graduate school to your, your current position at, at Howard? Or yes, did. did you have some stops on the way? No, no, I went straight from the University of Maryland to Howard. Excellent. And I, and I had expected to stay there for a couple of years and move on, and I'm now in my 22nd year. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that that uh, uh, is admirable, and, and something in the modern world uh, uh, we don't see as much of that with uh, uh, scholars moving about. Indeed. Uh, now, the when when we spoke this morning briefly, uh, just lining this up, you mentioned that uh, over the past week uh, in D.C., the inauguration of uh, the current president Barack Obama has overwhelmed everything and distracted people. Um, were you able to see any of it yourself? Well, I left my home at 4 in the morning. <laughs> it took me three hours to get down to the mall. I didn't have a ticket, so I stood with, with the rest of the unwashed masses <laughs> on the mall grounds where we all suffered together, and I didn't see a thing because I'm too short, and I was too <laughs> far away from the Capitol, and I couldn't see the jumbotrons because taller people stood in front of me. So my husband had to explain what was going on on the screen. It was hilarious. I, I nearly froze to death and didn't get to see anything. But it was still a glorious day. It was wonderful. Uh, the sense of occasion is still there then. Absolutely. And if I had it to do over again, I certainly would. Well, this uh, the, the, tying this to Lincoln, and, and that's the, the obvious connection here because uh, it has been through this past presidential campaign, um, I'm reminded of a, a comment Lincoln made to a uh, a group he was speaking to. I, I, I've forgotten the date, but he was addressing the issue of, of immigration. It, was, it must have been the 1850s. And he made the point that the United States was uh, unique in that we did not have a common ancestry, but rather a common ideology. If you adopted the principles of the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. it didn't matter where you were from, you could be become an American. And he went on in that to talk about the that the Declaration of Independence was not uh, was not a statement of fact as things existed, that the Founding Fathers did not mean to say all men are created equal, meant all people were literally being treated equally at the time. Right. But rather it was uh, a goal, a guide, uh, something to strive for into the future. Given the events of this past week, are are we there yet? Have we reached this goal that Lincoln spoke of? No, <laughs> we haven't. <laughs> I, I, I really don't think so. I think that what we've seen is an extraordinary event that has, has occurred by a confluence of events. Certain things came together to make this possible. One was an extraordinary candidate 
who prepared himself very well for this moment. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember who said it, but someone said once, um, opportunity dances with those who are already on the dance floor. And he certainly was already on the dance floor. So he's a major part of what happened, but then you have uh, a vast variety of Americans who embrace him and make it possible for him to become president. But will we see another African-American president anytime soon? I don't know. I, I think it's this, it happened this time. That doesn't mean that we have turned the corner and it's going to be smooth sailing. So when we talk about things like a post-racial society, I don't think we're there yet. And it may just be that I'm rather pessimistic, but I, I don't see it. You know, I, it would be wonderful if that's what has happened. And perhaps if he has a very successful presidency, it may make it easier for the next African-American to become president. But I think it's just too early to tell. Again, drawing back to Lincoln on, on this subject, uh, you mentioned post-racial, and it, it makes me think of uh, the, the, the long-ago comment uh, you remember from James Randall asking if the, the Lincoln theme has been exhausted back in the 1930s. Uh, uh, he raised that with the American Historical Association, and of course we've seen another 80 years of a constant flow of Lincoln books, uh, so clearly the theme has not been exhausted. Uh, but the the themes of Lincoln and race, uh, I, I wonder if they are turning a corner. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of uh, the James Liker's essay in, in Brian Dirk's book where he talks about Lincoln's whiteness um, and is looking at, at Lincoln and race in his era not through traditional lenses, um, uh, not in the categories that, say, Lerone Bennett might draw, uh, or for that matter, uh, uh, traditional Lincoln scholars would draw, but but looking at, at race as a social construct, as a, a spectrum, uh, and seeing where Lincoln fits in it, where his views fit in it, um, is, is Lincoln scholarship perhaps moving to a new new look at that era in that form? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, and I think it's happening because it's easier for people to deal with that. I think for so long. There was so much concern about looking at Lincoln's racial views or how he fit into even his time period because, you know, no one wanted to tarnish Lincoln's image. And there were certain things that he said that were rather disturbing to us in the 21st century, uh, was disturbing to people in his own century as well, but uh, certainly would be disturbing to most people in this century. But I think that scholars are now much more willing to look at what he said and what he thought, and yes, absolutely putting it in the context of his era. But I, I think that they realize now that one does not do harm to his memory by looking very closely at what he was thinking and saying. And that is always a challenge, to both to look at things in the context of their time and uh, to avoid being seen to take sides currently. Yeah, it, um, because we bring baggage to the study of history. You know, we talk about having to be objective, and we try to be, but we are human beings, and we do bring certain baggage to the study of any history. But it, with it, Lincoln, it's especially sensitive because Lincoln is the embodiment of all that's good about America. I mean, in certain circles, that's the way we see him. And so we have to be very careful about that image. 
Well, that's a good point to take a short break on. What we're going to do is step away for just a minute, take a short break, come back and talk more with Edna Green Medford on Civil War Talk Radio. is talking world talk radio studio a if my name goes down in history it will be for this act that's what abraham lincoln said about the emancipation proclamation we'll talk about the proclamation with dr edna green medford of howard university when we return on civil war talk radio For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. To Civil War Talk Radio, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Edna Green Medford, co-author of The Emancipation Proclamation, Three Views and uh, various other works, including a forthcoming one on uh, a a community of free blacks emigrating to Canada in the pre-Civil War era. Uh, To uh, wrap up something from our first segment, uh, I've caught my breath after galloping up the stairs uh, from one appointment to another uh, and have in front of me the Did Lincoln Own Slaves Bicentennial Tour Schedule, uh, a quick rundown of that. Redlands, California on February 12th. Gross Point, Michigan, March 18th. Austin, Texas, March 19th. Leedsburg, Virginia, April 14th. Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, last weekend of April at Harvard University uh, for the big show. Uh, May 5th, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. May 12th, Richmond, Virginia. And October 22nd, uh, Rocky Mount, North Carolina. All places, many of them for roundtables where uh, outsiders are, new folks are always welcome to uh, come in and join the group for the talk, sometimes for a dinner, and uh, 
uh, see what your local Civil War roundtable is doing. And uh, if you can come to any of those, I'd be happy happy to meet with you, uh, shake hands, talk about Civil War talk radio. Um, Edna, getting back, uh, first let me ask, have you been to Redlands? Yes, I have. I've never been there. Uh, I'm oh. curious. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, uh, I would guess you'd been there. Uh, what's it like? Uh, it's an extraordinary um, museum that they have there. It's sort of shocking to be there and know that you're on the West Coast and see that Lincoln is so revered even there. I mean, you, sometimes we think of this as more of an East Coast to the Midwest phenomenon with the, the Lincoln um, all that, that people know about and think about with Lincoln, but on the West Coast, there is that excitement about him as well, and they have a marvelous collection there. Well, I'm it, looking forward Lincoln, to going to the Lincoln Shrine. I've, I've built in an extra day so I can go and look at their collection and work oh, on... Uh, great. You would really want to. It's a wonderful well, collection. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about getting to do that. Uh, that will be on Lincoln's birthday Um while we're talking, I, I normally shy away from too much uh, uh, current events talk on this show because many people will download it over weeks ahead, and what we talk about today will be old news by the time they get to it. But Lincoln's birthday is coming up, the bicentennial birthday. Um, and I'm wondering who's going to be speaking at the Lincoln Association dinner in Springfield. Do you have any knowledge of that? I'm not sure of that. No, and I did know because I've, I've seen it. I've just, I cannot recall now who it is. I'm wondering, I, I got a, the invitation and it mentioned that the president of the society would be presiding, but it didn't name a main speaker in the invitation that I saw. And I wondered if they thought they were going to maybe get the president to uh, show up. Now, that would uh, be interesting. And that, that would... But I thought that I had seen someone listed, and perhaps mm. I'm mistaken. But yes, that would be. Exciting for them, I'm sure. It would be. I'm sure many people are competing for different. Oh, indeed, different we're we're having a conference at Howard on race and emancipation in the age of Lincoln in April, and we would certainly be delighted if the president would show up too. But I'm sure he has many other things on his plate at this point. I, I would think so. Um, let me ask a question too about Howard University. Just while we're we're at that, um, that has a connection with Abraham Lincoln, does it not? It, it has a connection to the Civil War. And in the sense that it was founded by, um, with among other people, founded by O.O. Howard, who was uh, a Union general. Uh, and so we have that connection to it. But and, it's not, but, but it's not uh, beyond that connection, I, I wouldn't say. I know that Lincoln University uh, at Harrogate considers uh, itself the sister school to Howard University in the sense that you have people like O.O. Howard involved in the founding of both. That, I guess perhaps that's what I was thinking of. They, they tell you when you go to Harrogate in Tennessee the story of uh, Abraham Lincoln saying to General Howard, we must do something for these mountain people after the war. They've been so loyal. And uh, so Howard helps them start a university there. Mm-hmm. And then he does uh, the same in Washington. Yes, yeah, so the university was founded in 1867 uh, by 16 men who were involved with the Congregationalist Church. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a part of the whole effort of the Freedmen's Bureau and other institutions uh, to create these uh, institutions uh, of education, for, for not just for the former slaves. In fact, Howard was not uh, founded specifically as uh, a place where former slaves would be educated. The, the original, the 
the first four graduates of Howard University actually were four young white women. Mm. And they were, we assumed they were the daughters of some of the uh, early founders of the trustees. But, but certainly it is a historically black university. And the first people there, I mean the first large number of people to be educated there, were uh, people of African descent. But it's interesting that the first four graduates were four white women. I didn't know that. <laughs> Did um, Do students today recognize the, the history of Howard, the, the students at the university? They have no choice. They're taught the history as soon as they get there. <laughs> it's uh, very important to us, and so we make certain that they know that history. Uh, that's good, the indoctrination. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, but a good kind of indoctrination. Well, that's right. The... the um, as I said at the introduction, I just came from a, an overnight uh, uh, workshop with the other department chairs here at East Carolina, and we were dealing with the, the brand of student today, uh, how incredibly technologically aware they are, and yet how uh, detached often from uh, the value of a liberal education many of them seem to be. And uh, I don't know if you experienced the same thing there. Oh, or I not. think that's true all over. You know, you will have some students who will will really get it, will really understand uh, the the significance of what they're doing and where they are, and there are others who will get it before the four years are up, but may not necessarily get it at the beginning. So we work on them. Yes. The other thing we talked about, of course, is the the budget, which is uh, dire. Uh, is Howard privately funded? Uh, Howard is, yes. It is a private institution, and absolutely we are suffering just like the rest of the country. Uh, these are very hard times for all of us. It's especially difficult for many of our students because our students uh, don't come from wealthy households for the most part, and many of them have to work to pay for college, and so it's, it's extremely difficult for them. So we, we are... Um, Relatively speaking, a uh, still affordable university, certainly much more affordable than many universities are these days. And so, you know, when you try not to raise the tuition and the cost of room and board, then you have to cut at some somewhere along the way. And so it's been very difficult. And we're, we are experiencing the same thing. East Carolina has a very high percentage of first-generation mm-hmm. college students, first in their family, to go to college. And, uh, yes. Uh, their resources often are limited. Uh, we have state support, but that's not helping all that much these days. Um, but the, the temptation I always have on the show is to, to talk shop for an hour, and the listeners are impatiently saying, this is Civil War Talk Radio, let's get back to work. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, is the subject of a book that you co-wrote with uh, Harold Holzer and Frank Williams. That's correct. That in addition to that book, uh, there's a recent book by Alan Gelzo uh, on the subject. Um, I'm trying to think who else has recently written on, on this. It's escaping me all of a sudden. There's another book, uh, is there not? Um, why, uh, at, at, between John Home Franklin's book in the 60s and then the last few years, nothing written about this This incredibly important document for almost 40 years. It's shocking, isn't it? You well, why did that happen? I, you know, I think maybe because um, we have had, uh, I, I think we've tried to separate Lincoln from the whole issues of slavery and freedom, and I don't understand why we would do that, because he certainly 
a great part of his reputation comes from the image of Lincoln as great emancipator. But at the same time, we really don't want to deal with him in that role, at, at least until now. And you're absolutely right. There's an explosion of books on the scene now about the Emancipation Proclamation. But before then, no one seemed interested in really writing extensively about it, with the exception of John Hope Franklin. And uh, I, I don't know quite why that is, except that, you know, he, Lincoln was sort of put in a, in, a, in a category where people just didn't want to deal with that. And even if you look at prior um, celebrations of Lincoln's birth, there was little or no mention of him as great emancipator. This year it'll change because, you know, we're making every effort, those of us who are involved, as you know, because you too are involved in Lincoln studies, we are making every effort to be much more inclusive. But for a long time there was this sense that what happened with African Americans really was not relevant when we were talking about him. It's just extraordinary. I know if, if you see the famous photograph, I'm thinking of the the first uh, the centennial celebration, 1909. There's that uh, photograph of the the meeting of the Abraham Lincoln Association uh, banquet of uh, men in in formal evening dress in Springfield, and it's a hundred men or more, all in uh, tuxedos and uh, all white middle-aged men. Right. Uh, no, no hint uh, of African American participation in that event. Right, exactly. Um, and and even in terms of the participation of African Americans in the war, I mean, David Blight wrote a wonderful book about that, about American memory, you know, race and reunion, and how African Americans were cut out of the picture. It's just extraordinary that you know that segment of the war, the cause of the war, and the prosecution of the war, and the winning of the war. That part where it relates to African Americans was simply cut out. It stayed out for for a long time. One can understand perhaps the period from from Reconstruction through the Second World War, uh, where uh, the the ending of slavery is is a halfway triumph, and that it's followed by Jim Crow by. Uh, uh, economic uh, oppression through sharecropping, tenant farming, uh, so that the, its freedom is certainly better than the non-freedom, but uh, but it's not full freedom. There's no economic justice, and there's certainly no political participation allowed right. for the descendants of the slaves. Mm-hmm. But after World War II, uh, you get into the civil rights era, and then you have John Hope Franklin's book, and I think it was 1961 or early 60s on the Emancipation Proclamation. But then you still continue uh, with the story not being told. Uh, the, the movie Glory t- tells the military story for the first time right. to the broad public in, what was that, 1989, I think? I think that that sounds about right. Right around then. Uh, and now we're, we're again getting books about the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, let me ask you, what, what is there new to say about the Emancipation Proclamation? Well, if, I'm, if I may just respond to, to what you've sure. said. Um, I don't think that there is no discussion or there is no literature on the black role after uh, the um, after uh, World War II. Throughout that period, both before the war, throughout the first half of the 20th century, there is literature on this topic, but it's being written by African American scholars, and unfortunately. 
African-American scholars have not gotten the kind of attention that other scholars have. It's almost like, you know, if an African-American is writing it, then it cannot be true or it's not authentic. And so we can simply discard it. So you did have people writing about it. It's just that it was not uh, embraced by mainstream historians, and mainstream only because they were white. I mean, not because they were better educated or anything mm-hmm. else. So the story is told, but it's not accepted by other scholars, I think. And, and when what? you see uh, the beginnings of um, more interest, especially in African Americans in the Civil War, uh, more recently I find it fascinating that some of the things that are written are sort of just, um, I won't say just, but certainly uh approximate what some of these African-American scholars wrote years ago. These were people who were pioneers and never got the recognition that they should have received. And in terms of what's new about the Emancipation Proclamation... Well, actually, let me interrupt you and, and stay on this topic because it's okay. very interesting. Um, do any names come to mind? Uh, yes, yes. Someone like Benjamin Quarles, who okay. um, spent most of his academic career at Morgan State University and wrote a book, you know, years ago called Lincoln and the Negro, for instance, mm-hmm. and covered some of the same territory that some scholars are covering today. Maybe tweaked a little bit differently, but the basic stuff is there, coming from someone like Benjamin Quarles. And Quarles never got the attention or the recognition that he should have gotten, given the fact that he's writing at a time when other people really aren't terribly interested in what's happening to Africa, you know, what's happening in terms of of African-American uh, historiography, but the story is there. You have someone like W.E.B. Du Bois, who's writing uh, at least about the post-Civil uh, War era. You've got people like Luther Porter Jackson in Virginia, who's, who's writing African-American history that touches on some of these things. So the literature is there, but has not been highly regarded, although it's good, solid historiography. Uh, Dudley Cornish wrote a book on the Black Union troops. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't, but I don't. I've never actually seen a picture of him. Was he African American? Do you know? I don't think so. But you know, I and I should know that, and I just cannot recall if he was or not. I don't think he was. Yes, I, I, I cannot be certain. No, we we can evaluate his scholarship colorblind. Yes, exactly. I, the, the last time I tried to um, judge the color of someone's skin, I got it wrong. So, <laughs> so I will never try to do that again. No, no, never good to guess unless there's the. Absolutely, uh, but but it doesn't matter. It was still a wonderful book. <laughs> Whoever yeah. wrote it. So. And and uh, James McPherson, one of his, his early, if not his first book, was yeah. on. Uh, the Negro Civil War. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, back in the 1960s. did a wonderful book that, that really was, um, used primary sources very, um, very closely. Uh, let, let African Americans talk about the war in their own words. And it was really terrific. Wonderful. It's a great book for, a uh, resource book, even now for people who are writing, uh, the history of the war, uh, from, from, the role of African Americans in it, or what African Americans were doing and thinking, it's still an excellent source. So, so the work was always out there through the '60s, '70s, into the '80s, but didn't catch the public imagination until uh, Hollywood did so. And, and, and that's now, a great way of putting it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. 
Now, with the, the proclamation, um, well, what we'll do is take another short break and come back and answer that question. We'll talk about the proclamation itself. We'll do that when we come back in just a moment. Our guest today is Edna Green Medford. I'm Jerry Povich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Abraham Lincoln was born 200 years ago this year, and the books about Lincoln still keep pouring off the presses. What more new could there possibly be to say? We'll talk with that about that with our guest, Edna Green Medford, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Edna Green Medford, co-author of The Emancipation Proclamation, Three Views, and that's a subject we've been working our way towards the last uh, two segments, but other interesting topics topics keep coming up. Um, well, let me get right to it. The question uh, on the floor is, what more can be said about this famous document in American history? Uh, the, haven't we written all there is to say about the Emancipation Proclamation? You know, when I first uh, did the book with um, Harold Holzer and Frank Williams, that was the question I asked myself as well. And so I approached the story from a different perspective, a perspective that hadn't really been looked at very carefully, I feel. And that was the perspective of the enslaved persons themselves. And what I wanted to talk about was how they perceived the proclamation. What did they think it really was about? You know, we assumed that they knew that... It was a promise 
of freedom, and certainly they recognize that. But for the enslaved person and for free blacks as well, people who already had their freedom, the proclamation meant much more than that. It wasn't just about freeing certain enslaved people in certain sections of the Confederacy, but it was, it was a promise of equality, uh, a promise of full inclusion in, in American society. So they assumed that once freedom came, along with that would come voting rights, social justice, economic independence. So their definition of freedom was far broader than was Lincoln's definition or the definition of most people in that era. And so I think that was important. And I, and I started thinking about it because I tried to determine how was it that Lincoln is seen very much as, as a savior to African Americans, to the, to the former slaves. But by our time, he's not regarded any more highly than most presidents. It's not that he is resented or he's disliked. He's just not thought about very much. And so I thought, how could you go from a, a reverence for Lincoln, a hero worship for Lincoln among African Americans in the late 19th century to, a, to our own time when there is not a great deal of interest in him? And my argument was that there was this disappointment, this disillusionment when the proclamation did not lead to full inclusion in American society. Now, the proclamation doesn't say anything about full inclusion. Not at uh, all. Not at all. It, but, it, but it was a perceived promise. This is how African Americans perceived it. You're absolutely right. Lincoln did not promise that. But the, the definition of African Americans was that freedom meant all of these things and that that would come along with the proclamation, that the proclamation was guaranteeing that this would be the case. And it didn't happen. And so Lincoln was seen as the guarantor of that promise. And, of course, he dies before it can be fulfilled, and African Americans expect other white Americans to carry the torch and to make sure that it happened. And it did not happen. If he had lived, do you think he would have been able to do a better job than Andrew Johnson? Oh, I think anyone could have done a better job than Andrew Johnson, <laughs> to be quite honest. And Lincoln would have been quite different. But I think we need to remember as well that Lincoln did everything cautiously. He never moved very far out front of of the country, of, of the, the the people he was governing. And I think he would have, at the end of the war, he would have been very conciliatory to the South. Certainly his his plan, he had drawn up a plan of reconstruction before he died. And that plan shows that he was going to be conciliatory. He did demand, you know, that they would have to pass the 13th Amendment. He does talk about voting rights for certain segments of the African-American population, the quote-unquote very intelligent and those who had served, you know, in the military for the Union. And so he was moving in the right direction, but it would have been a very slow movement. I don't think that he would have made any sweeping changes. It would not have been revolutionary, because that's not who Lincoln was. Despite the fact that he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he was a very cautious person, and I think he would have approached black rights just as cautiously. I, but I it wouldn't that, have been an Andrew Johnson. <laughs> no, no, I, I think 
uh, I would certainly agree with that, but I, I think that's uh, an accurate estimation. Lincoln certainly was was, was cautious, if anything. But it, as uh, as Frederick Douglass said, he uh, uh, judged by the sentiment of his people, uh, which he was bound as a statesman to consult. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he was uh, he was swift uh, compared to to the public, but uh, but slow, cold, tardy, dull, and indifferent uh, as an abolitionist right. uh, compared to the the absolute principle. And Lincoln I'm, would have agreed with that. He I wouldn't think, have had a problem with that assessment at all. <laughs> I'm holding in my hand a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation that measures about three inches by two inches. It's about the size of a business card. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a small pamphlet printed up. Uh, it is uh, about what is it, eight pages. It is a reproduction of an original in exactly this size that was printed uh, so that soldiers, uh, a businessman in Boston, I think, printed some 50,000 copies of these for Union soldiers to carry with them and distribute throughout the South to make slaves aware of what uh, of what Lincoln had said. Did you find anything in your research about how word spread among slaves of, of what Lincoln had done? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there there is all kinds of evidence that sometimes enslaved people found out about the proclamation even before their owners did, because the slave grapevine was just so extraordinary. So they got the information in a variety of ways. Sometimes they got the information from their owners, um, not directly, but just from listening to their owners talk about what was happening or listening to their owners read the newspaper or whatever. But they got it as well from from other people. I mean, we get the sense that enslaved people are very isolated and that they never know what's going on. You get the sense from from the Juneteenth celebrations that there are instances where people just don't know what's going on. And perhaps that did happen in certain isolated areas. But for the most part, enslaved people learned fairly quickly that the proclamation had been signed by Lincoln. And you mentioned Juneteenth. That's the, the traditional celebration of freedom in some parts of the country where people didn't hear about it till till June of 1864-65. Yes, in June of 1865, supposedly uh, in certain areas of Texas, but but there are some scholars who who sort of dispelled that too because in the areas that they claim that people didn't know until June of 1865, you had union commanders already in the area recruiting black troops. <laughs> So Sometimes the best stories to, don't hold up. Yeah, we need to revisit this this whole thing. I mean, it's wonderful. Juneteenth is a wonderful celebration because it does commemorate freedom. But I think we need to get our history straight. And it's there, certainly there are isolated areas where people didn't know. But in general, they did know, even in most parts of Texas. Uh, so, But having heard it, they did not act on it. There was no widespread insurrection. Well, not insurrection, but they did act on it. They, they, many of them joined the Union Army, but m- many of them were leaving even before the proclamation, long before Lincoln decided that slavery was a central issue and had to be rid of. Black people were already leaving the plantations. They certainly leave in much larger numbers after the Emancipation Proclamation. But even those who stay behind are influenced by the proclamation. They become insulting to their owners. They work when they want to. The system of slavery is eroding long before the war is over because that proclamation has been issued, for one thing, and because of all of the disruptions of war. 
so I really don't see how slavery could have been reestablished in the South after the war because so much damage had been done to it while the war was still going on. So you're absolutely right. There is no insurrection, but there is a change in attitude and action among African Americans as a consequence of what's happening. Now, Michael Vorenberg has written, and, and many others before him, uh, that the proclamation didn't actually free anyone. Uh, Lerone Bennett has, has written the same. Uh, I, I take issue with that. What's your view of that argument? Well, certainly when the, when the proclamation, well, when the soldiers came to the South and told people or, or at least gave them the opportunity to leave the plantations, yeah, the proclamation is freeing people, but it's my understanding that there are some 60,000 people so who are immediately released from slavery as a consequence of the proclamation, and I assume that some of those people would have been um, uh, in the Sea Islands, because the Sea Islands had already been occupied by the Union Army, but those people do get their freedom, even though the proclamation talks primarily about you know the release of enslaved people in those areas of the Confederacy still in rebellion. It's my understanding that the Sea Islands, uh, African Americans do get their freedom, and so that would have been immediate. Mm-hmm. And it, it, in addition to all the, the, the marginal places that are not excluded by the, the proclamation, which is very specific about where the Union Army is in control, it names the the, the counties in Virginia, the parishes in Louisiana that don't that aren't covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are many other places right on the margin, surely, where there must have been slaves who were immediately freed by by military control. Absolutely. Uh, but nonetheless, as you point out, uh, as you just said, uh, even where they're not immediately uh, freed, their their status immediately changes. They're, they're legally free, even if they, they don't uh, have the ability to act on it, and they can act on it in, in, in subtle ways, as you suggest. And that uh, makes so much of a difference. It really does. Even for the people who had escaped slavery before the proclamation is issued, those who end up getting behind Union lines before the proclamation is issued aren't certain exactly what their status is because they have been, they've been confiscated, they're contraband of war, but there's no determination of whether or not they are truly free forever. But when the proclamation is issued, they, they see this as their true freedom because the most important man in the country has said so, and that means a great deal to the average enslaved person. So that that uh, you know the argument that nobody is freed uh, immediately, I, I, I don't I, think I, it I, stands I, up. <laughs> no, I, I I would agree with you on that. Um, let me ask a, a difficult question, giving the the flood of Lincoln books out there. Um, what if you had to recommend one Lincoln book, other than mine, of course, uh, <laughs> uh, one Lincoln book to a reader uh, these days? What would you send them to? Oh, my gosh, there are so many out there. Oh, gosh, there would have to be any number, uh, you know, I, uh, Alan, anything by Alan Gelzo to start with. You know. He's got really great books out there now. He does. He has outstanding things. Harold Holder's new book, uh, Abraham Lincoln, A President-Elect, you know, is excellent, as is his book on Cooper Union. Uh, as is Ronald White's book on the second uh, inaugural address, which is extraordinary. Uh, gosh, uh, I like, I still like David Donald's Lincoln, you know, and I know some people you, you may not, but I do. <laughs> no, I, I do too. 
Uh, to, my, to, to my surprise, the music is starting already, saying we're at the end of our hour. Uh, it always happens too fast. But and the, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. is talking world talk radio studio a amb alert abducted child african-american girl six years old suspect wearing blue shirt black jeans now when an amber alert is issued you can get the same information the authorities get right on your cell phone sign up for free at wirelessamberalerts.org think of it something as simple as a free text message could free an abducted child all units amber alert canceled child recovered safely Suspect is in custody. What?